I am not going to be teaching tonight. Uh, I asked Joey to teach for me, and I did something different. I've never done it before. I asked him to continue teaching in the book of Matthew. Uh, I wanted to keep the consistency. Brad was here last week. I didn't want to be out of Matthew too long, so I asked him to pick right up in chapter 26 of Matthew. So Joey, come on up and share with us what God has shown you through Matthew. Teach us. I don't know how much I have to teach you, but I pray the Lord's here to teach you. Wasn't it great to hear Brad last week um, and hear of his ministry? I pray that his continues well as he journeys around the states and, uh, and heads back home to where it stays much warmer than this all the time. As a recap, especially since it's been two weeks since we've been in Matthew, I'd like to do a little recap back through chapter 25 before we get into 26. A short review, at the beginning of chapter 25, talked of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, virgins with the theme of, so to speak, are you ready? Our Lord was teaching them to be ready at all times. Uh, emphasis I found in 25 verse 13 says, Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Are you ready? Our Lord continues on teaching on his Olivet Discord in the parable of talents, what to do to be ready. And he teaches that the talents that were given to us, that we are to do something with. And he gives, uh, in verse 15, he talks of, and to one he gave five talents, and another two, and another one, to each according to their own ability. So everybody, everybody is given a talent, and some are given a little more, some a little less, but it's according to your own ability. And what we do with that, if we are ready, what we do with this talent is what leads to an outcome, so to speak, with the Lord. In verse 23, the Lord says to those that have done something good with him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, for those that failed to be ready at the Lord, in verse 29, he says to them, but for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. So those that have a talent, they're given to the Lord. Those that have failed to be ready, if you don't use your talents for the Lord, if you don't do things for the Lord, what you have will be taken away from you. So the Lord is calling them to be ready and to do with what he has given them to do. And he continues on, uh, starting in verse 31, talks about what happens when the Lord is going to come again in his glory. So he's asking us to be ready for him tells us what to do. I've given you something. I've given you a talent according to your ability, and you've got to be ready because I'm going to come again one time. He hasn't, he hasn't left yet, but he's talking about, he's given sort of a future glimpse ahead of time, his last teaching to these disciples here. And he notes in verse 34 of chapter 25, the king will say to those on his right hand, to those that were ready, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And for those, again, that were found lacking, where the Lord is called to, he gives us on both sides. He shows us, for those that are faithful in him, what is be given to us. For those that are not, we're called in verse 46 to say, and these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous will be get given eternal life. So that's where we're leading up to as we get into verse, chapter 26. 26 starts up. This is the end of the, the Olivet Discourse. And the Lord, it says, uh, verse 1 and 2, it says, now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Matthew's story here goes from, are you ready? What to do to be ready? What's going to happen when I come back again? And Jesus is like, all right, now here, here comes the time. 
I'm about to depart from you. I want to remind you again. So after the description of the coming kingdom, he reminds them that this Messiah must suffer and die. And he points out to them here. The, the beginning of chapter 26 shifts right here at this point to verse 3 through 5. It says, The chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of high priests, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So Jesus has finished his teaching, and he's reminded them that he has to be delivered up to be crucified. And at the same time, Matthew throws in a little glimpse here of what's going on in a different place in the, high, in the high palace of the priest. They're plotting by trickery to kill Jesus. But they don't want to do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So this long controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders, it's finally coming to this point here. But notice... Jesus was in control. Jesus is recorded first saying, I'm about to be delivered up to be crucified. They're over here plotting to try to do this, but Jesus is over here saying, I'm about to be crucified. The very things that the leaders didn't want to happen is precisely what happened, though. They said, we want to, we want to get this guy, but we can't do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, guess what happened? Jesus was crucified. He was given up during the feast. So no matter what they plotted to do, no matter what man's plots and, and, and tricks and tries to do, our Lord is always in control. The word trickery used here is deceit. And I just thought about these guys, these priests, scribes, elders of the people. What manner of leader, religious leader at that, that condones the use of trickery, of deceit, to accomplish a goal, much less to kill someone? says a lot about these leaders of the people at those times. says a lot about our Lord and how he was in control against these brood of vipers, as he has called them many times. Now, Matthew 26 shifts again to um, verses 6 and 7. We'll take a look here. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's over near the Mount of Olives. It's the place nearby where, where John the Baptist was baptizing at. It starts off by saying that he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Simon the leper kind of jumped out at me. How'd you like to be called Simon the leper? Let me talk about that for just a minute here. Let's say, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, let's say Jason, my friend Jason here was deaf at one point and Jesus came and healed him. And I would go, hey, Jason, the deaf man, can you hear me? It's like a joke. And he'd be like, I can hear you, man, loud and clear. Jesus healed me. That would be a good thing to be called. What if, what if, what if Luke here was blind and the Lord healed him? And I'd say, hey, Luke, can you read this? And he goes, yeah, hold it farther back. I can still read it. Jesus healed me. My eyes are better than anybody's. Simon the leper. We don't know much about him, but we can guess he was healed by Jesus. Can you imagine the people around Bethany? Because we'll hear somebody, Mary, will have heard of this, and she's going to come to this house here. Hey, Jesus is at Simon the leper's house. They're having dinner over there. And somebody who didn't know Jesus will be like, he's eating at a leper's house. Are you crazy? He goes, oh, no, no, he's been healed. Healed? How do you heal a leper? Oh, Jesus healed him. Jesus healed him. Who is this Jesus? Oh, let me tell you about him. So when you see Simon the leper there, I bet the guy kept that nickname. 
as a testimony. Yeah, I was Simon the leper. Seriously? Oh, I'm healed. How'd that happen? Simon the leper. That's all we know about him, but that was kind of enough for me. Then it says, a woman came, from, came to him. The woman's not named here in Matthew's gospel, but in John's gospel, she's named as Mary. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary seems to be, whenever we see Mary, this Mary, particular Mary, Mary of Bethany, throughout the gospel, she's always at Jesus' feet. Just something I noticed in John 11, when he's at the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus is coming, Mary, John 11, verse 32 says, and then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him. And the gospel of Luke, it's recorded when they're at Martha's house and Martha's about busy. Mary is sitting as it's recorded. Now it happened as they went and he entered a certain village, and a certain woman called Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard her word. This is the Mary that we're talking about. She's sitting at his feet, and she has an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she pours it over his head. Now, if you, if you note, there's another time, another instance, where a woman comes to Jesus and she pours oil over his feet, and she wipes it with her, her tears on his feet, and she wipes it with her hair. That's actually a different person. It's not really named. It's kind of known, guessed it, we could be Mary of Magdalene, like that. That woman was known to be a, a harlot, so to speak. So it's definitely not to be confused with this Mary, Mary of Bethany. So the Gospels record two different Marys, or two different women, I should say, coming before Jesus and pouring costly oil upon him and weeping and being at his feet. Now, knowing that there's two different ones, that's something to know, but should it astonish us that these two women did such an act? Or should it astonish us not that 200 came before him to do this act? We'll see why this is such a beautiful act as we continue on here. First off, that alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil is worth about one year's wage. So take all that you earn throughout this whole year, spend it on one item and give it to the Lord. That's what this cost her. But when she looked at our Lord, she didn't think it was too much to give to him or all. Would it be too much to give all that we have to Jesus? I consider it would be a waste to not give him all that I had. Anything that I don't give to my Lord would be a waste in the end. Let me continue on. Uh, in verse 8 and 9 here, and this is Matthew's gospel here, it says, When his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. I noticed something different here because I looked at this account again back to John's gospel. And I thought about John. John was the one that, one of the ones that Jesus loved. John's the one that recorded in his gospel when, when they went running to the tomb, John got there first. You know, when John records this incident, he says, Lazarus was the one saying, not Lazarus, sorry, um, Judas was the one saying, why this waste? Judas was willing to say, but here, here's Matthew saying his disciples saw and they were indignant. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew would have been, he would have recognized greed. He would have recognized greed. So where John is all about, John got there first, I'm the one that, one of the ones that Jesus loved. Matthew was kind of, you know, just two different personalities here telling the story. Matthew, from his background, was like, you know what, fellas? Judas may have said it. Judas may have started it, but we were all sitting around grumbling about it. You know, Matthew sort of kind of calls them all out about it when he says his disciples saw it and they were indignant. 
it would seem Judas instigated it, and that's the ringleader, and we're the, we're the point, that's the guy you go after, the ringleader there. But let's continue on in verse 10 through 12. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. From pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Jesus became aware of their murmuring, all of them, and he called them all on it. He stopped it. He confronted them. He pointed them to the appropriate nature of the moment to honor him at this point in this extravagant way. Note, this woman poured the oil on his head. She was anointing him. If you know anything of the Old Testament, priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. Jesus is both king and priest and our high priest. This sort of points to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll be learning about in Hebrews on Sunday. Don't miss that over the next few weeks. I won't get into that here. Notice he said, she did this, or Lord said, she did it for my burial. I struggled with, like, did it for his burial, but he was still alive. Why did she do it now? Why did she, well, she had to do it now. Think about Mary. She was always at our Lord's feet. She was always close to his Lord. When you're that close to the Lord, you really hear from the Lord. You're really led by his spirit. And I picture here the spirit just leading her to go and pour this oil on his head as for burial now because he's not going to be there after he's dead. He's going to be resurrected. So this had to happen now. Mary gave Jesus the love and attention he deserved before his great suffering. She understood more because she was in a place of greatest understanding. She was at the feet of Jesus. Now our Lord says in verse 13, Assuredly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. She is a beautiful example for all of us to be at our Lord's feet, to pour all that we have to him. And then our Lord says here, Matthew didn't miss noting that, adding the story in here, saying, um, here we are reading this story. Here we are. Her, her story is told throughout the Gospels recorded. Now we'll continue on to uh, verse 6 and 7. And when Jesus was in Bethany, oops, I turned right back to the wrong page. I was like, why am I reading that again? Now at this point, we'll continue on to verse 14 and 16. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me? If I deliver him to you. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas, he was greedy. He carried the money bags. He saw that year's wage wasted in his eyes. And his greedy heart said, that, that's enough. You know, I'm following this guy. He's supposed to be the next king. He's supposed to be the Messiah. He's going to hit in Judas's heart. He thinks the Lord is going to go into Jerusalem and take over and kick the Romans out. And he wants to be part of this, you know, he wants to be treasury of state, so to speak, I guess, in his heart that way. And he sees this waste and he sees Jesus just, he just can't take it anymore. I'm eating at a leper's house, a former leper's house. I'm seeing a year's worth of waste just poured down on his head. He just, Judas's heart is just never, ever right there. He was motivated by greed even towards this beautiful work, this beautiful gift towards Jesus. He goes to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me? 30 pieces of silver, it's not a lot of money in that time. 
From what I could read and look up, it was about the price of a low slave being sold for auction. You would think that Judas, being greedy, would have asked for more. But again, I see the spirit at work here. I see God in control here. And I see God ordaining that Jesus would be sold for the price of a low slave for just 30 pieces of silver. And that's how he can relate to all of this. This king, this high priest that was just anointed to him, was sold for just a mere what would be about 20 bucks. A mere nothing. The price of a low slave. Continuing on. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day period which the Passover is a part of. The Passover is a remembrance of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and it was the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. And that's what they're going to prepare for. When the disciples turn to our Lord, and you can tell that they're walking their growth here, when they say, where do you want us to prepare? They're ready as, as our Lord's servants here. They knew their duty to go forward and prepare for him. And also notice that they say as they went into the city to a certain man, that that man's name is not recorded here. I don't know who this man's name was. And I thought, what a beautiful blessing for him. You know, because his gift of our Lord having his last supper in his house is known only to God, his name. And what a blessing that is to him. And besides, I don't know, I've not been to Israel, but I don't know if in Bethany or in these parts, the people like, this is where he had it. This people would just flock to and worship that spot versus the act and the gift that was done there in our Lord. So I thought it was beautiful that it was listed that it was just a certain man. Also notice that our Lord says, my time is at hand. Quite often throughout the gospel, Jesus would say, it is not my time yet. My time has not yet come. But now he is announcing to his disciples, go prepare that Passover meal. My time is at hand. I wonder if they clued in and picked up when he said that at first. What he meant by time is at hand. I wonder if they got excited about it. I know they didn't completely understand it yet, but I wonder if they clued into that. I do know that it says here, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. So then I know they took our Lord's command and they did exactly as he directed them. Those would have communion with our Lord as they're about to do must do likewise and do as he has instructed them. Friends, continuing on to verse 20 and through 22, it says, When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Exceedingly sorrowful means they were, they were greatly affected by sadness. I mean, can you imagine them hearing this news? One of you is going to betray me. Must have been terrible, impactful to them. I note the disciples saying, is it I? Is it I? They turn to themselves. Bear with me as I play this on an opposite view that way. Imagine if our Lord came into this room right now and he was talking to all of us and he said, one of you is going to betray me. Would our hearts say, is it I? Or would our hearts go, I won't look at anybody, but I'll just say, hmm, I bet I know who he's talking about. Even lean over, 
I think it's so-and-so. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> or would we look at our hearts when our Lord speaks to us, saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I that would, could betray you? Is it I? I think the disciples did grasp when he said, my time has come. This is my time now. And this act of betrayal right at the end, right when it's getting critical, they're like, don't let me fail you now, Lord. Lord, is it I? Here in verse 23, the Lord answers and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now again, I'm going to go back to the Gospel of John. And John quickly points out that Jesus says, it's the one who I hand a piece to. And Jesus dips a bread in the bowl and hands it to, to Judas. John quickly points out it's Judas. But here we have Matthew and his way of his personality in sharing this story. And he says, it's he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. You see, their, their style of eating, then they're laying around the table and they have these foods. And it's not like the way we eat in America, so to speak, where we have our dish and you have your dish and don't touch my food kind of a thing. You know, <laughs> there they shared the dishes. They all dipped their hand in. And what Matthew's saying here, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Matthew, again, is referring to all of them. He's pointing out that Jesus is saying the one who's going to betray him is one of his friends. You know, even though John points out it was Judas, obviously at this point, Matthew was like, man, it could have been any one of us. Our hearts could have easily failed our Lord here. It's one of his friends. Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, the son of man indeed goes just as it, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. When our Lord says, the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, I found Psalm 41 verse 9 to say, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And again, this is where I draw from the earlier where he says it's just one of his friends that had betrayed him. And when our Lord says, if it had been better for him if he had not been born, of course, at this point, it is said of Judas, of that man who is betraying him. But it also can be said of every person who does not accept Christ as their Savior. You'd be better off never being born than to have rejected God. In verse 25, Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And our Lord says to him, You have said it. If I can share, again, from the Gospel of John, from chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that we're all familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When our Lord says, you have said it, Back to Judas's confession of our question of Lord, is it I? Jesus is not trying to condemn Judas. He's calling him to repentance. I imagine he looked at him with a broken heart and with love in his eyes, saying, Man, you've said it. You're you're the one about to almost like if I could stop you. But Judas had his free will, and off he went. Jesus showed his full love towards Judas, despite knowing he would betray him. Jesus calls this whole world that looks at him in the same way as Judas did to repentance, that the world through him might be saved. 
At this time, we go into the lesson on communion, the Lord's Supper. And if I could have the guys hand out, Jason hand out to communion. We're going to take communion as part of as we go through this. I'm going to continue on as they, as they hand this out here. Uh, in verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he blessed. We're going to take communion individually after we go through these, these next two verses. Okay, and we'll play a little music. We'll take it individually. But I just want you to focus on that while we go through this. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Notice when the bread was lift up, lifted up at the Passover meal, the head of the meal would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Everything eaten at the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning. Bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. Salt water remembered the tears under Egypt's oppression. The main course of the meal, the lamb, freshly sacrificed for that particular household, was a sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over the household that believed. Jesus, though, as he had this Passover meal, his last supper, didn't give the normal explanations of the meanings of each food, as would be custom for this, though he reinterpreted them into himself. As he said, take, eat, this is my body. He didn't talk of that lamb that was slain, he talked of himself. The focus was no longer on the suffering of Israel and Egypt, as the remembrance of Passover would bring about, but now the focus would be on the sin-bearing suffering of Jesus himself, as he brings out to them. In verse 27 through 28, then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Um, the word give thanks in Greek means, it, in the Greek, the ancient Greek word is Eucharist, if you've heard that term before. In Hebrew, the word thanks is tada. It means it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is for us a thanks offering for deliverance from death. As Jesus has given this thank offering from there. And he says, drink from it, all of you. Christ is welcoming all to come drink of his sacrifice, of his thanks sacrifice, of his saving sacrifice. He says, this is the blood of a new covenant. Jesus institutes this new covenant here. No mere man could ever institute a near covenant between God and man. But Jesus had the authority to establish this. And it was sealed with his blood, just as the first covenant was sealed with the blood. This is how we remember what Jesus did for us. As we eat the bread, we should remember how Jesus was broken, pierced, and, and died for our redemption. As we drink the cup, we should remember that his blood, that his life was poured out on Calvary for us. And also notice at the end it says, when it is which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's, Jesus' righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, by Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. 
that call to mind from chapters 25 through this point in 26. Are you ready? Are you prepared as the five virgins that were prepared? Have you used the talents that God has given you? Are you a good and faithful servant as our Lord is in obedience to the will of his Father? We'll continue on the last two verses of this section. In verse 29, after they finished their supper, our Lord says to them, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus looked forward to the future celebration of the Passover in heaven. He's waiting for all his people to be gathered to him. There we'll have a great supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb, as listed in Revelation verse nine, chapter 19, verse 9, when he says, this is the fulfillment in my Father's kingdom, that's the supper that our Lord is hoping for and waiting for. In verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine Jesus singing what his voice sounded like? The hymns that they would have sang in the Passover is called the Halal uh, Psalms. It's Psalms 113 through 118. They're traditionally sung throughout the Passover meal um, at that time. I would like to, if we could at this point, turn to Psalm 116, please. Now we're at the conclusion of this service. I went a little fast, probably talked fast. I don't know, I wasn't sure how to give time for things here. But as I really took in Jesus at his last supper, I mean, that's his last supper. He left from there and went to the Mount of Olives as a condemned man. He went to go pray, then he would be taken and he would be beaten and he would be mocked and spit upon and then he would be killed. Because imagine him as he stood with his friends, with these 12 men, and they would sing one of these psalms here. They did it in sort of a chant fashion that I wish I could hear. I wish I knew exactly how it sounded. But we don't know how that sounds. And if I may be allowed to, instead of singing a final hymn tonight, could I ask us all to stand? And we'll take a look at Psalm 116. And instead of singing, because you don't want me standing here singing, I'd like to read Psalm 116 together. I'm reading from the New King James. If you have a different version, just read along as well. Think of our Lord singing this, this, this psalm. Think of him as he stood there with his 12 disciples that he's been with for three years now. Think of him as he's about to go up to the Mount of Olives and pour out his heart in prayer and to be crucified. Okay, so beginning at verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surround me and the pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, 
and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Why shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Now in the presence of all his people, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Now, in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads and go before the Lord. Father, thank you for this evening. Father, thank you for your scripture and how it teaches us to how to, to be prepared, to how to be prepared. And you tell us of your kingdom coming, Lord. Lord, you showed us of how our hearts should be, that we should look and be wondered, is it I, Lord, that could betray you? And let us draw closer to you and be at your feet, Lord. Father, thank you for the communion that you desire to have with us. And we look forward to that wonderful day in heaven where we have communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.